take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Continuing our series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and uh, we've entitled this series, Beginnings. So far, we've looked at several beginnings, and all of them have been good. The beginning of the universe, the beginning of stars and moon and sun and plants and land and seas and animals and man and woman. We've seen the beginning of marriage the beginning of worship, the beginning of paradise. Uh, today, though, we're looking at a tragic beginning, uh, the beginning of sin, in humanity anyway, the beginning of death for humans, the beginning of temptation, the beginning of unbelief, distrust in God, It's a tragic thing that we see here in the third chapter of Genesis. Um, But this tragedy that we find in these pages, I pray, will lead us to the hope of the gospel. So let's start in verse 1 and let's read together Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As you're reading the Bible, do you ever like to put yourself in the story see yourself as one of the characters. It feels good to do that sometimes, right? We like to think of ourselves as David fighting our Goliath. We like to think of ourselves as Esther here and now for such a time as this, right? It's inspiring. But then what about when you read about Judas Iscariot, You know, he kind of reminds me of my (laughs) brother-in-law. We don't like to put ourselves in that story quite as much. Or my favorite as a preacher. um, Oh, you're preaching about Jezebel? Yeah, I'm going to have to send the recording of that to my mother-in-law. Like, wait a second. (laughs) 
We, we like to see ourselves in the good characters of the Bible, uh, but we don't like to see ourselves when sin comes up in the Bible. Uh, here's what we have to realize when we come to Genesis chapter 3, though. This is us. What we just read, this is us. In fact, there are not many places in Scripture where we can see ourselves so clearly as we can right here in these verses from Genesis chapter 3. Because as we look at this passage today, we're, we're seeing the original sin of humanity, but we are also seeing a pattern of sin that has been repeated in every human being since. The tempter that Adam and Eve encountered in the garden is the same tempter that you and I face every day. And the tactics that the tempter used against our grandparents, Adam and Eve, are the same tactics that he uses against us. The same tactics that Adam and Eve gave into are the same tactics you and I give into. So my burden this morning as we look at this passage is that we would see the tempter's tactics in Genesis 3. That we would recognize them for what they are. That we would recognize them when we encounter them for ourselves. And that because we can recognize them, because we can identify them when they come at us, that we would then run to Jesus. That we would see that Jesus is better than the promises of sin. And that we would turn to him. So, so here's the main point of this sermon. Know the tempter so you can flee the tempter and run to Jesus. Know the tempter so you can flee the tempter and run to Jesus. So let's get into the text. Uh, the first thing we're going to see in this text is the identity of the tempter right out of the gate. As we read Genesis, uh, and we're reading in chapter 2, we're moving into chapter 3, uh, you know, things are all moving so well, things, it's paradise, things are so good, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, here comes this serpent. Who is this? Well, the text doesn't really give us a whole lot to go on in terms of who it is behind the serpent, but when we take the rest of Scripture into consideration, there's no doubt who we're dealing with here. Uh, Revelation 12, 9 describes him as the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. As the serpent enters the scene here in verse 1, this is none other than Satan himself. The devil has invaded paradise. The text does tell us a couple of really important things about this serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. And we have to know who our enemy is if we're going to combat him. So first, it tells us that the serpent was crafty. He was crafty. We have to realize that the tempter is not obvious. He's not, uh, he's not blatant. He is subtle. He doesn't come in with a sign around his neck saying, I'm going to tempt you to dishonor God now. 
He's crafty. He's clever. He's tricky. He is the deceiver of the whole world. So don't assume that something that looks innocent is as innocent as it looks. No, just as 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He is crafty. The second thing that this text tells us about the serpent is that he was created. Do you notice that? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He is a created being. The serpent was made by the Lord God. Our enemy is not like God. He is a creature. God is the creator. The enemy is not eternal. He's not sovereign. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. There has not been some eternal struggle between good and evil as if, as if they're equal powers, you know, the, the light side and the dark side of the force, right? That, that's not what Scripture teaches. It's not what is true. Satan is not an equal match to God. Praise the Lord. He is just another created being. So when you're facing the tempter, know that he is crafty. Know that he is deceptive. Know that he's stronger than you. Know that he can outwit you. But know that he is no match for the creator God who is eternal and sovereign and omnipresent and omniscient and who is able to crush the serpent. So we've seen the identity of the serpent here in verse 1. In comes to the scene this crafty serpent. He speaks to the woman. And next what we see as he begins to speak are the tactics of the tempter. This is the main thing we're going to be looking at today. The tactics of the temper. Tempter, sorry. We are going to see four tactics of the tempter. And, and sadly, we're also going to see four moments when the first humans give in to each one of these strategies of the devil so tactic number one minimize the generosity of god minimize the generosity of god look at what he says at the end of verse one did god actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden now the the crafty tempter does not just come right out and deny God's word, at least not yet. But he does totally misrepresent it. What did God actually say? Look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God actually said nearly the opposite of what the serpent says that he said. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. He only forbid them from eating of one tree. But the serpent not only misrepresents God's word, but by doing so, the serpent totally misrepresents God's heart. What God actually said, 
demonstrates that God is tremendously generous. And the conversation could have ended right there. Eve could have said, Adam could have stepped in. Nope, God didn't actually say that. He's actually incredibly generous and said nearly the opposite of what you're saying he said. And Eve tries to do that. She tries to give a rebuttal to the serpent, kind of. But she makes several fatal errors when she tries to do so. Look at verses 2 and 3. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So as she is trying to defend God's word, the woman actually misquotes God's word three different ways. And as she misquotes God's word, she makes herself vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. So how does she misquote God's word? Well, the first way is she subtracts from God's word, downplaying God's generosity. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But what God actually said is far more emphatic. What God actually said is you may surely eat. Uh, the, the way that it's expressed in the Hebrew is, a, is a repeating words. So like eating, you may eat. It, it's emphasized by this repetition. Surely eat of every tree of the garden. And while Eve does not make the, uh, the, the exact error that the tempter tempts her with, she downplays God's generosity still. Which is exactly what the serpent was trying to get her to do. He wanted to minimize God's generosity. And the woman, again, she pushes back on his claim, but even as she does, she does not accurately depict God as generous as he really was. You want to open yourself up to temptation? Just minimize God's generosity to you. That's the first step. Minimize all of God's blessings in your life. You don't have to deny them. You don't even have to ignore them. Just make them seem a little smaller than they really are. We read at the beginning of our service, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yeah, just, if you want to open yourself up to temptation, turn that into, yeah, I'm a Christian. And before you know it, the pleasures of the world start to look really good. Instead of thinking, God has blessed me with a beautiful, talented, humble, gracious wife, that becomes, yeah, I'm married. And the stage is set for that website that you haven't clicked on in a while to start looking better than it used to look. Instead of thinking, God has provided for my needs time and time again, we think, eh, it's a job. And all of a sudden, it seems a lot more appealing to round down on your taxes. When we downplay God's blessings, we open the door just a crack for temptation for the tempter to get his foot in the door. So the first tactic is to minimize the generosity of God. The second tactic that the tempter uses 
maximize the demands of God. So when the serpent attacked God's character, not only was he downplaying the fact that God is generous, he also painted God as being stingy, withholding, and strict. Did did God actually say, you can almost hear like a phony uh, shock in his voice. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He, He paints God as withholding, and strict by blowing God's prohibition, what he forbid, by blowing that out of proportion. By taking this one command that he gave to not eat of one tree and to blow it out of proportion and as if he had said, you can't have anything at all. This is a tactic that the tempter uses all the time. He makes it seem like the one thing we want and can't have is so significant that it's as if we can't have anything at all. We believe because I can't have blank, fill in the blank, I can't have a full life. The tempter twists God's word and makes him out to be a tyrant. And again, even as the woman is giving a rebuttal to the serpent, she falls into his trap because she misquotes God a second way. She adds to God's word, making it more severe. She says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. But God never said that they could not touch the tree. Just like the serpent wanted her to do, she saw God as more strict than he really is. She minimized his gifts and maximized his restriction. Essentially, what we have here is the first example of legalism in the Bible, adding to God's word to make it more of a burden. And legalism seems like it would make you more righteous, but it's actually a step toward unrighteousness. It starts with a command like God says in his word to not be drunk. But then, you know, just to make sure that we don't break the command that God actually gave, we add a command, well, don't even drink. Don't even touch it. That way we are guaranteed to stay far away from what we're not supposed to do, right? But actually what we are doing in the process, even with good intentions, is we are distorting our perspective on God and making him seem more like a slave owner than a slave freer, which is who he is. And we are much less likely to obey a taskmaster than a redeemer. The third tactic of the tempter. So minimize the generosity of God, maximize the demands of God. Number three, minimize the consequences of sin. So the woman misquotes God in a, in a third way. She subtracts from God's word, minimizing the consequences of sin. She says, uh, neither shall you touch it, as she's misquoting God, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Lest you die. But what God actually said was much more serious. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's that emphasis again that he had in his command that she loses as she's quoting him. Ironically, 
the woman makes God out to be more severe in a way that he is not by adding to his word, but she also manages to make God's punishment for sin seem less serious than it really is. And this is exactly what the tempter wanted her to do. He seizes on this opportunity immediately. Look at his emphatic words in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. The woman made herself vulnerable, and the serpent went in for the kill. In his craftiness, his subtleness, he led the woman so far away from the truth of God's word and the goodness of God's heart that he can now explicitly deny God's word without the woman even batting an eye. A writer named Derek Kidner uh, makes a really striking observation about this verse. He points out that the very first doctrine ever to be denied is the doctrine of God's judgment. Have you ever considered that? There's really nothing new under the sun. This is something that we have seen repeated throughout human history all the way into our day. There's always a strong force to deny the doctrine of hell. That God punishes sinners with eternal conscious punishment. Some say that God only punishes sinners temporarily. Some say that God punishes sinners, but they don't really know what's happening. Some say God annihilates sinners so that they just cease to exist. Some say hell is only for the worst sinners, and there's a lesser punishment for the better sinners of us. Some say hell is more of a state of mind. Some say God doesn't punish anyone at all. Why is this so common? Because when the consequences of sin seem small, sin doesn't seem like that big of a deal. So we don't feel as bad about doing what we want to do. But it's not just minimizing hell and death that leads us to sin. We open ourselves up to sin anytime we downplay the consequences of sin. My family will never find out. A bunch of people have done this and gotten away with it. We deceive ourselves into thinking that what we're going to do is not going to have any negative impact on our life, so we indulge ourselves. The fourth tactic of the tempter. Maximize the pleasures of sin. So minimize the generosity of God. Maximize the demands of God. Minimize the consequences of sin and maximize the pleasures of sin. So let's continue our look at the serpent's deception, picking up at the end of verse 4. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's the heart of the serpent's temptation. God is not keeping you from that thing because it's bad for you. He's keeping it from you because it's good for you. He is not trying to keep you from pain and punishment. He's trying to keep you from pleasure and prosperity. And the lie of the deceiver continues today. 
What do you mean I can't marry whoever I want? Doesn't God want me to be happy? What kind of God would keep me from believing my own truth? It's worth noting that the serpent is not making totally empty promises here, but his promises are only half-truths and very misleading. Because what we're going to see is that when man and woman eat, their eyes are opened. But not to some state of spiritual enlightenment. Instead, they see their nakedness. And man and woman do become like God, but they don't become divine. They become their own idols to their doom. But the woman doesn't see the emptiness of the serpent's promises. She doesn't see the half-truths. She doesn't see the deception. Instead, look at what she does see in verse 6. So when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Ultimately, though the woman and the man are going to say, essentially, the devil made me do it, uh, it wasn't the serpent's doing. It was the choice of this man and woman. What finally led to their sin was giving in to their desires. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The woman was lured and enticed by her own desires. She saw that the tree was good for food. It was appealing to her body. It would satisfy her appetite. She saw that the tree was a delight to the eyes. It was, it was attractive. It was beautiful. She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It was, it was empowering. It was enlightening. It promised a feeling. It promised an appearance. It promised power. The woman... And the man gave in to everything the world continues to offer today. As 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These are the promises of sin. Sin promises to satisfy your appetite. Maybe it's an appetite for food or drink. Or maybe it's an appetite for sex. Maybe it's an appetite for something new. Or an appetite for something exciting. Sin promises to make you look good. Maybe you want a, a good physical appearance to be thought of highly by someone. Maybe you want a good reputation. And sin promises that it will give you what you want. Sin also promises to empower you. Maybe you want influence. Maybe you want people to submit to you. Maybe you want to be able to do whatever you want without anything standing in your way. 
These are the lies that sin tells us. But again, the woman and the man miss the generosity of God. Because everything that they were looking to receive from the forbidden fruit was already available to them from God. He is the true and right source of all of these things. Do you want your appetite satisfied? Want something that looks good? Well, God planted every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food in the garden. Want power? God gave them dominion over everything in creation. Want to be like God? God made them in his image. There is no creature that is as much like God as man and woman. But the one thing they couldn't have, equality with God, was the one thing they had to grasp. Once the woman's eyes saw what she wanted, she stretched out her hand, she touched the fruit, plucked it off the tree. No doubt as she brings it closer to her face, that delight to the eyes that she saw just intensifies. The curiosity she's always had about what it would be like is about to be satisfied and she takes and she eats. She gives it to her husband whose mouth is no doubt already salivating just thinking about eating this forbidden fruit. He takes it. He eats. And before the forbidden fruit can even hit their stomachs. The regret has already sunk in. All of a sudden, they see something they've never seen before. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They realized they were naked. They experienced shame for the first time, regret for the first time. They felt vulnerable. They felt exposed. They felt like they had something to hide. They felt like they needed to take cover. So they took the largest leaves they could find and they did their best to alleviate their discomfort. We'll talk more about the immediate fallout from this rebellion next week. Um, but for now, we need to come back to what we said at the beginning. This is us. Because this one act of sin by the first man and woman injected sin into every human being that has come since. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Every one of us descended from Adam and Eve are born with a sin nature. One of the places we see this is in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Look with me there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came into the world 
through the first man, Adam. And as a result, we are all born with his sinful nature. Our hearts on their own are bent away from God and toward sin. And as a result of our sinfulness, we deserve the punishment for sin. Eternal death. But notice that sin is not just something we've inherited from Adam. Death has spread to all people, Paul says, because all sinned. We are not just victims of Adam's rebellion. We are perpetrators. We are rebels. We have earned every bit of the hell that our sin deserves. At this point, in a sermon, as I'm attempting to communicate the God, God's word, I, I need a segue into what we're going to talk about next. And, and I struggled to figure out, how exactly do I segue into what we're going to talk about next? Because what comes next is just, by human standards, totally illogical. To the human brain, what happens next makes absolutely no sense. Given the fact that we, time and time and time again, have given in to the tempter's tactics. Given the fact that we are not just victims of Adam's rebellion, we are perpetrators ourselves, rebels against God. Death has spread to us because all sinned. We all deserve death. We have all rebelled against God. We've all given in to the tactics of the tempter. What comes next makes no sense because what comes next is good news. The holy God looks at rebels. He looks at lawbreakers. He looks at us. And his response? Grace. Look at Romans 5, verse 17. As it is written, sorry, I'm back in chapter 4. Chapter 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The first Adam's sin led to our sinful nature and ultimately to death. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the last Adam's perfect obedience has made a way for us to have new eternal life and to be transformed into his righteous nature. Can you believe that? Given all that we have seen about ourselves, our rebellion, our sinfulness, what we deserve, Can you believe the outrageous kindness of God towards sinners like you and me? People who deserve to surely die. God has shown kindness, grace. Just consider, in contrast to the tempter's tactics... 
consider the radical grace of God in the gospel. First, God has maximized his generosity in Christ. What is so scandalous about the gospel is that God is more generous to sinners after the fall than he was to perfect people before the fall. Look, at, if you're still in Romans 5, at Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. No, perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has demonstrated love to us. Sinners, weak people like us who give in to the tempter, ungodly people like us who don't deserve even to live, let alone to have someone die for us. But that is how generous God, in his grace, has responded to our sin. He has maximized his generosity to us sinners in Christ. So the next time, the tempter comes at you, trying to deceive you into thinking that God is holding back, that he's not really that generous, run to the cross and see just how generous God is. See maximum generosity. Second, God has met his demands in Christ. If you see what I'm doing here, you might have expected me to say that God has minimized his demands in Christ. But God cannot do that. He's holy. The gospel is actually far better than that. The gospel is far better than God minimizing his demands. Because in Christ, God didn't lower his demands on us. He met his demands for us. Look at Verses 18 and 19 of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass, we read in Genesis 3, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is Totally righteous. He lived a perfect life of obedience that we never could have lived. Unlike the first Adam, when Jesus encountered the tempter, Jesus did not accept the tempter's offer to satisfy his appetite with bread. Jesus did not accept the tempter's offer to make him look good by jumping off the temple and proving he was the son of God. Jesus did not accept the tempter's offer to empower him by giving him all of the kingdoms of the world. He stayed perfectly faithful to the generous God. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, 
uh, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though we fail to measure up to God's demands, Jesus, who perfectly measured up to God's demands, offers us his perfect record of blameless righteousness for free. If we accept by faith his righteousness, we can be declared not guilty. We can have God's demands met for us, met by Jesus on our behalf. So the next time the tempter is coming at you, trying to make you think that God is too demanding, look to Jesus, who gives us his righteousness by faith. Third, God has placed the consequences of our sins on Christ. Not only can we have Jesus' righteous life credited to us, we can have his payment for sin applied to us. As we read before, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Someone might think that the fact that Jesus died in our place uh, would make us take the consequences of sin less seriously. But if we really look at the cross, what we actually see is just how severe the consequences of sin are. Our sin was so great, it took the perfect Son of God dying, beaten, bruised, and bloody on a cross, bearing the full weight of God's wrath, took that in order to pay for our sin. When we look at the cross, we see what we deserve. We see what our sins are entitled to. The cross should make us take sin more seriously, and it should leave us astounded at God's mercy to us. Just think, we deserve our bodies to be broken. We deserve our blood to be poured out. But Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for you. I mentioned Derek Kidner before. Just listen to this quote of his commenting on Genesis 3, 6. She took and ate. So simple, the act. So hard, it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. The next time the tempter comes to you trying to deceive you into minimizing the consequences of sin, look to the cross where we see the seriousness of sin and we see the body 
of Jesus broken for us that we may take and eat. And the blood of Jesus poured out for us where we may take and drink. Lastly, number four, God has provided more pleasures than we can fathom in Christ. We began our service this morning again with the truth that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look up with me at Romans 5 in the first five verses and just consider the blessings that Paul outlines here in these verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Righteousness, peace with God, access into grace, glory, endurance, character, hope, God's love, the Holy Spirit. What more do we need? Everything that Adam and Eve thought sin would give them, they already had from their generous God. And what was true for them is even more true for those who have placed their faith in Jesus for righteousness and forgiveness and eternal life. So don't believe the empty promises of sin. To quote Kanye West, never thought I'd say that. You're going to do what Adam do or say, baby, let's put this back on the tree because we have everything we need. Next time the tempter comes to you, feeding you the empty promises of sin, run to Jesus in whom we have everything we need. This is unthinkable kindness. It's the kind of kindness that ought to lead sinners like us to repentance, as Romans 2.4 says. So let the kindness of God help you resist the tempter. May you be so overwhelmed by his blessings in Christ and the gospel that you laugh at the tempter when he claims God is anything but generous. May you be so grateful for Christ's perfect obedience for you that you delight to obey him. May you be so humbled by Christ's sacrifice for you that you wouldn't think about toying with something as serious as sin. And may you so experience the pleasures of knowing Jesus that the pleasures of sin grow strangely dim. And when you do give in to the tempter, and we will, May we come running to the Savior who is ready to show us his kindness again and again and again that it may lead us to repentance. Let's pray. Father, pleasures of knowing Christ 
far exceed the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I pray that we would come to Jesus with our sin, with our shame, with our brokenness, with our record of failure time and time again. And Lord, I pray that we would come to Jesus and experience the grace and generosity that he offers. May we be satisfied by his righteousness. May we be freed by his forgiveness. May we exult in his life. Lord, may it give us such joy to know Jesus, Lord, that the tactics of the tempter fail. Lord, may we all come to Jesus and find everything we need. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.